Phoebe. Hey, Jem. Welcome to Money Can't Buy You class, everybody. I'm Phoebe Kaufman, and this is my BFF from the womb, Gemma Godfrey. And today we have a spectacular, lovely, brilliant, beautiful, wise, gay uh, friend <laughs> joining us. Uh, their name is Becca Teich. Uh, hey, Becca, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, uh, longtime listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have admired Phoebe's dedication to reality TV for so many years, and it quite literally is a dream come true to be able to uh, talk about my favorite thing on earth. I know we're gonna get we're gonna get into some some cross uh, some famous housewives crossover, which is Vanderpump Rules mm. today, and we're gonna get into some Adorno famous housewives. <laughs> The most famous of the Jewish housewives. <laughs> we were talking about how they're they're rarely Jew like like New York, like the Real Housewives of New York, is like the Jewish conglomerate. It's honestly almost stereotypical and like a little bit offensive that like New York is like the Jew capital. Um, but I mean, Beck and I are both from New York City, and we're both Jews. Um, but irregardless. Um, I think Adorno, Adorno is like real housewives of, what would, what would, Adorno, like, where would Adorno fit in the best? Oh, poor baby. I mean, he was, he was displaced to and fro. Um, I feel like he would make a great disgruntled housewife of LA when he was displaced in the US. Um, you know, just kind of like, I'm another transplant, you know. Yeah, so I, I was thinking more SLC. I was thinking that Adorno would be like would be like incredible in like Salt Lake City because he'd fit into the whole like misfit ethos of that of that show. True. That's just me. I mean, that also is the other franchise that has the most Jews, which is two by birth yeah. and one by can still, yeah. still part of the faith, you know. Which is crazy. It is real. That was shocking when I watched because you're like, <laughs> here we go with the Mormons, and they're like, we're all Jewish, and I was like. <laughs> This is the most religious, like foregroundedly religiously diverse show on Bravo. It's insane. Yeah. Also, the, the, my favorite part about, but the, the, there is Jewish presence on the Real Housewives franchise, but it's a little like, they're all kind of waspy Israelis. <laughs> like Aviva and um, Dorit, you know. But I don't think Dorit is a practicing member of the Jewish faith, but she is Israeli. No, I, she is. I think that she is. Yeah, she probably she, is. She just doesn't. She keeps it off camera. Yeah. Um, so I'll just I'll just jump in uh, with the with what we're gonna with what we're gonna get to today. Um, so maybe I'll foreground it as such. I think so. Something that Gemma and I talk about a lot is how it's like how when we tell people especially of a older boomer generation that were avid viewers of the housewives they kind of are like why like why why do you want to like isn't that a show for dumb people and i think that that's like i think that that's something that we uh we we almost try to explain as like the thesis of this podcast you know it's just like what draws us to it like why is this show so like vital to like the critical socio-political economy like which is the united states mm -hmm. so um so we've invited becca here 
because Becca is a, a, a brilliant Adorno scholar. Um, but Becca also is like a huge fan of Vanderpump rules. And I think that there's this kind of incredible contrast that you see between people who you kind of like know in your social life as like very smart, very critical, very whatever, who then you like have a couple of drinks with. And it's like, it's like this, this almost like reveal. It's like, oh my God, I love Vanderpump Rules. So we've invited Becca here uh, to talk about the Real Housewives franchise, in particular Real Housewives of Salt Lake City and uh, Vanderpump Rules read through or read with um, uh, the Frankfurt School scholar Theodore Adorno, especially um, his thoughts on the culture industry and uh, fascism. So that's kind, of, that's kind of our outline. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the most exciting challenges of this fun and flirty combo is the fact that so I have that same reaction, you know, like my parents don't get why I watch this, you know, like my mom watches it and she's like, yeah, because I'm like zoning out. But I found that for me, the media that I consume is media where either the artifice reveals itself entirely or does not. So I'm talking like, you know, me, me and Adorno in many ways have a lot of the same taste, you know, we like that. <laughs> like our Beckett's you know we like our uh you know enigmatic works of uh art that has a complicated relationship to the autonomous but then also I like shit where the the foil is so obviously revealed and so like I can't watch you know Hollywood movies but I can watch um eight seasons of Vanderpump Rules three times in a row because I'm like so there yeah yeah I think that I think that yeah, I think that the Vanderpump Rules, I think there is something obviously in like the, in a way, like the kind of like you're watching something that's like you enjoy watching somebody's, you enjoy watching these like dramas play out. You kind of enjoy the like disgusting aspects of the people. But yeah, the foil, I think the reveal of the foil is really like keeps me coming for more. And I would also, I don't know if I have something specific to say about it, but I would also say that the rewatching culture is something that makes me feel pretty insane, <laughs> especially watching something like Vanderpump Rules or Housewives, but Vanderpump Rules, which is so loud and angry and hostile and re-watching it is like, what am I, what am I trying to do here? Like, why, why do I need to repeat this process? And it like forwards this very particular, I think that Vanderpump in particular forwards a particular relationship to the category of the worker, yeah. <laughs> where, you know, the real housewives, it's this kind of conundrum where it's, it can kind of hide the fact that they're working, you know, because what we see, like, it, this is like the stage of Adorno's critique of the culture industry, right? Like we are consuming um, or like this is one facet of how he perceives Hollywood in that time period is we are consuming these kind of overly indulgent, um, excessive images of uh, people with no moral center who are hyper individuated, um, who are relying on, you know, like girl boss aesthetic, deep consumerism. And we consume that kind of blindly uh, and it both like is part of a world mired in atrocity and we are accommodating that world uh, through its consumption and not not acknowledging all of the, uh, you know, um, 
intermediary stages between all of that or all the things that that uh, are required for this kind of production and which is itself atrocity uh, but here in Vanderpump Rules you see not only do you see them working not only do you see the fact that they are aspire that like they're broke and they're aspiring to be celebrities so this show like they're at their restaurant job and they really show that this show is their job as opposed to housewives where it's like is it and then you see the contrast between the housewives and them having this kind of like fuck the boss you know backstage dynamic where all of a sudden we're going from like I don't know, loving uh, Kyle to thinking she's a fucking bitch. Yeah. Like that. the crossover episode. So yeah, Phoebe, I want to hear what you think because you, you, you are like such a Beverly Hills stan, newer to Vanderpump Rules, but the crossover episode, first of all, any crossover in any television, any time is mind blowing to me and I can't get enough. <laughs> but this one especially is really um first of all it's really cheesy like the way that they do it like is really bad and like the editing is like really really just cheesy but um but it is very exciting to see this kind of behind the there's somehow this some of this idea of like something behind the curtain or this other part of lisa's life that's now coming and like the brandy the the drama yeah no something that so I'm a very, like, I only saw, I've, I, I've only seen Vanderpump Rules through the co crossover episodes. And just like this evening, I started watching a couple episodes of Vanderpump Rules. There's something very serious about the underbelly. Um, and, and, you know, reading, uh, uh, like reading, reading Adorno in preparation for this, I was like, really, I'm like trying to find it right now. But I was really, I was really struck um by by a couple of quotes so in in Freudian theory um and the and like the 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 the, the theory of like fascism propaganda he writes that it is precisely this idealization of himself talking about Hitler which the fascist leader tries to promote in his followers um, and then I was kind of thinking about that compared to in uh culture industry uh re not not re I, I keep I keep reconsidered uh where he writes the consumer is not king as the culture industry would have us believe not its subject but its object so I was thinking so much kind of like going off of what Becca was saying about like who the the characters or the charades or the caricatures of Vanderpump rules are in relation to the shows which literally came before them both in epic but also in um, that's how they aired on television because these uh, these caricatures are are the consumers so they're mm -hmm. already understood via Dorno as objects but then what they do with that like self objectification is they put that on television and they kind of like try to make themselves the leader or the subject of 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 the culture industry it kind of in order to make more consumers out of their own objectification you know and i think that that like i think that baudrillard uh would have a lot to say about like the the simulation is not a simulation of reality but it's a simulation of a simulation of a simu of a simulacrum or whatever but but that was a relationship which i actually find very interesting is is kind of like the double 
object of the of the cast of Vanderpump Rules, where or I guess the triple object or like infinite object where they're both consumers of reality television, they're objects of the consumer, and they're also objects of Lisa Vanderpump because she she does their paychecks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this quote also where he says, according to the ideological illusion, the workers, the true providers, are fed by the leaders of industry whom they feed, which also got, I mean, you know, there is the very obvious thing of who makes the most money off of this show, obviously Lisa Vanderpump, um, you know, she, and they are quite literally feeding people and yet uh, they are constantly having to ingratiate themselves towards her. But I think that there's something that you brought up that thinks about like the dynasty of the show's lineage yeah. that embodies that. So it's not just her relationship to them, but these kind of the, the shows that are inherited where it's not just that Lisa has this kind of maybe fascistic mother figure role towards her individual workers, but also the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills has that mother figure role to Vanderpump Rules as a whole. I also think, yeah, exactly. I think I think the Lisa Vanderpump, when Phoebe, when you're talking about like the double object and this kind of like, like that's how like I also feel like that's really applicable to Lisa because she like comes from this point of and also like she comes from the point of being this kind of matriarch of the Rouse of Beverly Hills. She was like the most famous member, like she was the 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 celeb. Everyone loved her. Like, and then she kind of and she was kind of the architect of the drama on that show. And that's ultimately why she like got ousted because like Kyle was like enough. But like then, you know, then she has this, she spawns this new show. And like, I also think the idea of dynasty with Lisa is her whole fucking brand. It's like her house is like a kingdom. It's like, you know, Villa Rosa. And the, you know, she has, she has swans. Like she really does like think of herself as a kind of, royal figure and i think in an american way we people are easily to like they they identify her that easily because she's british so there's this like reference of monarchy i think in like the way she just like language and like just like her accent i think like and the way she holds herself is very kind of by ironically kind of like queenly because she was like a failed actress who married like the best the biggest playboy in britain you know like there's nothing she's not you know she doesn't come from any kind of position of actual sort of dynasty or legacy, but she has created it. And I think that the show, um, I think that Vanderpump Rules like is about serving her, but they also wanna, you see them kind of develop drama with her and like wanna kind of steal the throne. And they say like this phrase, kiss the ring a lot in Vanderpump Rules and they're talking about like, you know, kissing Lisa's ring and then to the Toms get their own kind of chance at glory when they have a restaurant like so I think it, it is all this kind of like it's a very hierarchical like delineation of power for like the cast and especially with Lisa yeah, yeah well something something that um you know in the in the oh my god sorry I'm like by the way like I've talked about this with Gemma before but I'm on antidepressants and they make me totally aphasic so sorry but um something that Adorno writes in Freudian theory and the pattern of fascist propaganda that's what it's called you know he talks about he gets into like the gayness of it all like he talks about how how there's this kind of like mapped 
passivity, which is understood as feminine or like he codes passivity as feminine, uh, which, you know, which culturally, um, you know, makes sense and culturally reads. Um, if you're, if you're following like, 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 you know, social, social patterns of binary, how the, how the followers are the passive are the feminine. So he kind of says like, because of that, there's like this libidinal economy of homosexuality in being the right and being the follower of, of like the daddy of like the Hitler of like whoever the fascist leader is, who honestly is kind of genderless. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't think that even in these essays, it, it, it matters that Hitler's a man. I think that Hitler is just this figure of, um, of a type of masculinity uh, as like this socialized uh, power. Um, which is, which is fascinating then to think of Vanderpump rules itself, like Vanderpump rules as, as its own show, but also on the level of each individual character as each having this like homosexual passive character in relation to the fascist leader who people will jokingly say, oh, like Lisa is such a fascist when like, sure, like, yeah, she's not like killing all the Jews and like she loves gay people, supposedly. <laughs> But it's like the type, you know, it's where like, like homonormativity, like, like theory comes into play because, because the, because the relationship that they have to her is one of passivity. And I think that it, it matters that she could be the Hitler, the fascist ruler or whatever, because she enacts that type of passivity on everyone who works for her, for, for her and therefore the whole show and therefore each individual. So I think that I'd like, I'd really like to talk about like the, like, like, like the gayness, the queerness of, of Vanderpump Rules um, as opposed to the, 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 the other franchises which usually document the ruling class, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, there, the thing about Vanderpump Rules is I always say that it's the gayest show on television, 100%. I mean, so firstly, one of the things that I noticed when watching the back-to-back -back this time was the fact that um, there was all this kind of, in The Real Housewives, um, there was all this kind of uh, family drama. You know, it felt almost like you know, Jane Austen, uh, where this person can't be mad at this person because their families have been friends for so long, for generations or what have you. And then you cut to this other show where all of a sudden um, Lisa is the fascistic mommy. There is no daddy. Um, the, the, the family dynamic is purely enacted through the workplace. So, you know, you have the, the mommy boss and then they're all kind of sister wives of this sort. Um, and then you also get to the, the fact that, and I think I say this all the time to people because it is the gayest show on TV. Um, they're wedded to form and they hate it. Um, they, all the men constantly talk about how they don't have sex with their girlfriends. They don't like their girlfriends as people. Uh, and they're not attracted to their girlfriends. And they are constantly, the men are constantly touching each other. Specifically, there's like a whole like anal eroticism that's grounded in jokes um, through that. And all the women hate their boyfriends. 
think that they're disgusting, think they're smelly, think they're like absolutely repulsive, think that they're evil lying cheaters. And they indeed, in fact, they are evil lying cheaters um, on this show. And they all like, they all have girls night and they get naked together. You never see heterosexual touch in this show. You only see homosexual touch. And then the only kind of like universal uh, vocalized attraction is to Lisa where all of them are talking about how hot they think Lisa is and how any of them would either like turn gay or break up with their partner if Lisa wanted it. Um, so like the only like true universally acknowledged sexuality is like that to like the mommy fascist. Right. That's so so again, I haven't like seen, I've only seen three episodes, four episodes of Vanderpump Rules. But to me, it's like so telling that like the Oedipus, like, you know, because I feel like, I feel like, well, I have this, I have a theory that, you know, reality TV sets or is setting or has set a new cultural standard of, um, of like normative sexuality via the family structure. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's like fascinating that, um, you know, it's not necessarily Oedipus, which maps onto Vanderpump rules, um, if you're just thinking about it purely in terms of gender. But even if it's not in terms of gender, like they don't give a fuck about Lisa's husband because he's kind of already so, um, what's it called when a man gets his penis cut off? What's what castrated, castrated. yeah he's already so castrated by very very right and this you know and um but 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 it's also not necessarily an electro complex mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i don't actually think that reality tv like i think you know there's this incredible uh scene in the season two premiere of vanderpump rules where Jax is like Stassi's dad was talking about how like I need a male role model and he said his was Steve McQueen but like I don't even know who the fuck Steve McQueen is and Steve McQueen is like I mean I like I, I know who Steve McQueen is like I feel like everyone knows who Steve McQueen is he's just like the guy in that holocaust movie with the with the motorcycle you know that's how I know him because I'm a Jew but I feel like other people may know him as like just like a hot hunky blonde man but I think that in that rejection of the history of Hollywood, there is also simultaneously like a rejection of, 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 of like the historical understanding of the family through Freud. You know what I mean? And I think that kind of like that is on the, you know, perhaps that is just, that's just me saying that, but perhaps that's also like, like this, like this rejection in modernity of ancient culture and like ancient, um, ancient ancient patterns of sexuality you know so I, I wonder what like you guys would have to say about that or if that's like bullshit or if I'm reading too much into it I don't know well I think that there's something to be said about that idea of like modern like some modern version of a family or something because like you do have like um Ariana and Tom Sandoval do have a pretty modern relationship in that like Tom is not out in any real sense but he loves to dress and drag he loves having makeup on and he's very open about it like he literally is on the show all the time talking about it like he really and ariana in the more recent seasons has come out as bisexual 
and she doesn't want to get married and they don't want to have a house. And they're very like, even though that's the most basic understanding of like a modern couple, they're very, um, they really are vocal about it. And I also think that Becca, you wrote something down in the uh, doc about this kind of like committed to, they're committed to friendship and endurance over like, regardless of like whatever their horrible friends do to each other. And I think that in a way, like the intimacy in Vanderpump Rules, while the overt intimacy is about like all this kind of like adulterous sex and like kind of like really gratuitous, like drunk sex, like all of those things and this deceit, this deceitful sex, like I think that the intimacy that is actually the focus or the most important part of the show is these friendships. Like that they are, because I don't know how true this is or like what the exact details are, but like they were all friends like in college. Like they did like all come to this show. I think they were kind of scouted. Like, I don't know what, how that, how that show started. I would love to know that actually. But you know, like I do think that the, the intimacy and the eroticism is about the friends. It is about like the group of friends. And so while there's also like a lot of tension among the, like among the men versus among the women, there's also like a, just a general group, like, like they've polyamory because because they've all, a lot of them have had sex with each other and like, but they're, and they're so bonded in this way. And, you know, I think, I think that that's like, that intimacy is like really at the forefront as well. Yeah. I think that Ariana was maybe the first person to say on reality TV, the word heteronormative, which yeah sticks in my heart forever. But yeah, yeah, there is this kind of really I mean, on you know, you could take it on the one hand as they, like Adorno was talking about, where was that quote? Romance. Yeah, it reduces love to romance. Mm-hmm. Um, the culture industry is pornographic and prudish. So I think that, you know, on the one hand, it's almost like, uh, like a lot of people view Adorno as being very sexually conservative, which in many ways he is. Um, but I do think that there is something important about the like, pornographic and prudish because like they're both talking about sex all the time in this really explicit way and also are incredibly averse to having sex with their partners um and the love that they have for their partners is this kind of like well you know like I I, I need to get married like that's an important thing to do so I'm just gonna stay with this person even though like he did the most awful things to me so it's all about you know kind of the gloss of romance and not actual love but you're complete, you know, so on the one hand, I could say that this is an incredibly heteronormative show um, that is so committed to its heteronormativity that it will excuse any harm to be committed to to, to the, that cu- coupledom. Like none of the couples love each other, except actually maybe Ariane and Tom. But I think they do kind of love each other. I, I think that Ariane and Tom, yeah, I think that they do. They they're good I like them I think they're living an honest life together like I think that they like I don't know if Tom like you know maybe he doesn't want it public but like I have a feeling they have a pretty open relationship and I have a feeling that they're very honest with each other and like you know the rest of them are all performing this Mm -hmm. idea of like a dysfunctional couple and like that's a whole other thing about this show too is like the performances because you were talking about passivity or somebody was talking about passivity and this kind of hierarchy and like the worker thing to get back to that like for a moment is like they're also performing being 
employees and being waiters and waitresses. And the thing that's interesting about that is they all were that not performing. They were all that not on TV for a long time. And like, they're performing this kind and they're giving us this illusion of like a workplace and Lisa's kind of performing being this hands-on boss, you know? And, and I think in many ways, the, like at the beginning of the show, I do think that they were genuinely like employees. And I think that that's now changed a lot. And it's interesting, this new cast group with season eight, who's like repeating the same thing, but they clearly seem more like cast and like more like Instagram influencers. But like, as the show moves on, like it's interesting in the newest season, they're like, like Ariana is like, I miss working. All of them are like, I want to pick up a few shifts. Like it's this, so they, they, they need to like, they need to maintain this illusion of like, that they still work for Lisa and that the whole reason the show is happening is because of the restaurant. Like that's still like Lisa as the executive producer, like make sure that her restaurants are still being marketed at every turn. Um, sorry, that kind of went on a weird tangent, but yeah, anyway, I think that there's a lot of performance aspects of this and like a passivity of performance and a passivity of like these relationships because they're not really actively in a relationship. <laughs> yeah, no, it, there's, in the first few seasons, there was like this afterwards, a retrospective by Andy Cohen, where he was talking about it. And one of, he was mentioning how one of the things that people really enjoyed was they weren't seeing Lisa's mansion. They were seeing Tom Sandoval's apartment where he couldn't run the microwave and the AC yeah. at the time. You know, yeah. so there was this like genuine um, relation to a class position that was so different from the other Real Housewives franchises. Not that like that hadn't been shown on TV before, but not in such direct relation to like the exorbitant wealth franchise of it. Um, and also it makes you think about the way that that actually has this effect on the relationships, right? So like there's all these archetypes for how the real housewives form relations um, with their husbands, you know, particularly, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, reproductive labor and the gendered wealth and all of that and like hashtag girl boss. Um, but then you might, I, I was provoked into thinking about how maybe the like shitty working conditions of this job helped to produce the dysfunction of these relationships. You know, it's really easy to be like, oh yeah, Jax is a psychopath and Stasi's like the devil um, as he does indeed call her and she calls herself. But it's also like they're being berated by assholes all the time and are forced to like kiss kiss the ring of Lisa Vander like they have to continue to perform gratitude for even being employed in this place you know to begin with um which is absolutely not a facet of their relation that I thought of before and then also like the whole wedding like the the relationships themselves are dysfunctional but also like don't really matter what matters is like the family aspect this like there actually is a sort of unconditional love that exists both maybe like in the friendships which is like you know someone I that I've read two different poems in the past two weeks that say friendship is so gay but then also there's like this like you know monarchical aspect of it with regard to like Lisa and her and her court right yeah well I so I actually I worked in a restaurant for like for like five years like all throughout college and then um like the first year after college until I started working in, at the fucking Strand, which was 
its own nightmare. But, um, but no, but like the idea of performativity is just like, obviously it's like very obvious, but also very fascinating in terms of service work, because like, I remember, so like the first, um, first summer I worked for the, um, for, for this restaurant, which was like this, like very nice, very, uh, expensive, like Italian restaurant on the upper side of Manhattan. You know, I kind of dress like, like, uh, like I, I don't know, like I wear like men's clothing, you know what I mean? Like I'm very obviously like, like bisexual, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or just like, are, my bicons. Yeah, I'm a bicon. Uh, what can I say? No, but like, but I remember the manager at the time, she pulled me aside and she literally said to me, she went legally, I can't fire you for wearing men's clothing and not wearing makeup. But I, but I will fire you for wearing my, I will find a reason to fire you for wearing men's clothing and no makeup. So come to work in a bra and a, and a tank top and wear some eyeliner, you know? And then I kind of learned through that job. I was like front of the house. I was the, I was like the maitre d' for that place. You, you like your, your whole, your whole life becomes this social performance of, of like the gender assigned at birth or like the whatever, or, or like the intense heterosexuality of like needing to flirt with all the men who come in and needing to be like the girlfriend for like all the girls who come in. Um, and, and you know, and like, and like through that like gendered and sexualized performance, the restaurant becomes your whole life, partly because it's at night and, you know, and like, that's kind of just like where you are when you're drinking and you're eating and it's so fucking social all the time. It needs to be your life, but like you kind of become stuck in that performance of like, of, of heterosexuality. So I feel like in my normal day-to-day life, if for whatever reason I was asked to be in a reality show, I would say, no, thank you. I don't want to. But in the persona that I needed to take on at the restaurant for so many fucking years, I would have been like, I don't really give a fuck. Of course, I don't care. I'm already performing. I'm already this character. Maybe I'll just make a joke out of it. Maybe I'll just like see what happens with it. You know, so I think that there's already this performance inherent. And like, the, you know, the own, I was friends with the owners. The owners would come in. They should talk. Like it was very Lisa Vanderpump. And it's just, I, I, I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going with this besides to just say like, there's, there's a performance inherent in being a service worker. Well, yeah. I and mean, I think, I think too, what's interesting about the idea, like, with Vanderbilt rules and what you're talking about is you're talking about this very specific like working in a restaurant in your 20s is like such a thing like culturally and like among like people who are trying to be artists or actors like it's a very specific like that's what that's what you do like there's a kind of room it's kind of romanticized in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. yeah, of like sure. like oh like that's what you do you work in a restaurant you pay your dues you make good tips you go out after you know like and you become friends with everybody in the restaurant and everybody's like you, like, I think that that's a real important part of the fabric of Vanderpump Rules because the idea is that they're all on a stepping stone to being like LA stars. And like, even the newest season where that feels so distant as a concept that that's even possible. Like I live in LA and I meet people that are like, I moved here to be an actor. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's 2021. (laughs) That's crazy. I'm like, Cause also not even like, it's hard, but like at this point, that's not how I, the world, now it's everything's on like, inst- you, you become, you know, it's all, it's all different. 
but there's like it almost feels like analog or something. It's like this kind of old school idea. And like the newest season, one of the characters is like, I just moved to LA to like to make it as a comic. And it's just like, it just still feels, it's so strange. But I also think that like, Becca, you have this quote that you put in the doc called, where it goes, existence in late capitalism is a permanent rite of initiation. Everyone must show that they identify wholeheartedly with the power which beats them. And that's from, uh, the culture, the industry, culture industry Adorno. And I was thinking about that too. Like Phoebe, you're talking about this kind of performance of working in a restaurant, but like it's, it's very much like an initiation, right? Like there is like a, the, like the Vanderpump Rules characters are, are, are being hazed like by each other. Like Stasi hazes Sheena, Lisa hazes them. Like the customers haze them. You were hazed by your manager to be like, which is not unlike a sorority hazing, right? It's like this idea of like, of being like, you gotta be like us. Like, you, you're gonna do it? Yeah, can you handle it? And but it's, it, a- it's more than, but it's like the, sorry to interrupt you, keep oh, going, but, like the, but the us is less of an us of the of an in crowd and more of a like, this, like, 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 like a social looking out. It's like the externalization, yeah. right you know it's like being being in a being like a part of the restaurant it's like you're being a waiter like there's like your part like you have to do your part and so I think that the I think that thinking about Vanderpump Rules and a lot about it is like as like these kind of moments of like initiation Mm -hmm. is interesting because it's also kind of like an initiation into Hollywood and into Bravo and you know yeah well there is also like the the so so one of the interesting backstories to season one was it was actually supposed to be half as long as it actually was. And you notice a big change that goes on. Um, so are we allowed to do spoilers? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so basically spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, everyone should watch it regardless constantly. Yeah. So it was divided into two parts. And if you notice the first like five episodes or whatever, all the um personal, like all the um one-on-one interviews so it goes between like their narrative life uh what they're doing day to day and then this you know interview where it's like yes and I want to be an actress I want to be a singer etc so it's really focused on their aspirations and there's also these intense scenes where they're counting their tips um so it's really acknowledged like their material conditions um quite literally like we hear how much money and tips Sheena makes in a night. Uh, we hear them debating whether or not they should divide the tips evenly or it should be, you know, whatever the person takes home. So we get this really intense um, dyad between their actual, you know, the, the, the actual material consequences of, of what is going on and how they are or not, or not being fairly compensated and how the social dynamics, dynamics contribute to certain people being like, unactively underpaid and also these dreams that are part of artifice too like Sheena wants to be a singer but she doesn't like singing she's never been a singer she does not have a good voice and she says it herself she just somewhat looks like Britney Spears when she has when she dyes her hair blonde and goes into the recording studio, gets super auto-tuned and like makes sex noises. And so like, she's interested in like being the, the, the like knockoff of Britney Spears and not even to be like a star at it, but just like to be like, you know, like she doesn't want to be a good singer. She doesn't want to make good music. She wants to be a good knockoff. 
Um, but then of course the season changes because right the day, the last day that they were supposed to film was the day that like Jacks got in the big fight at, like it was supposed to end at Stassi's birthday. Yeah. And then they got into a fist fight and people got arrested. And then all the like pregnancy allegations turned out to be true. And it all, <laughs> oh my God, no, it's, yeah, they, they had to film extra episodes because yeah, nuts up. The, nuts the nuts drama up. that ensues in this show is absolutely mind boggling because you also kind of think like, you're like, this is not for the camera. Like this yeah. is not for the camera, especially in seasons one through three. You're like, these people are bat shit insane. <laughs> like they, the amount of, like that's, that's the other thing like about this show that I think is interesting is like the presence of like real violence all the time. Like, like they are violent people, but like Katie punches her boyfriend. Like they're always all like physically attacking one another. And it's insane. <laughs> psychologically too which is also like how it pivoted so like the whole narrative of like we're in Hollywood to pursue our dreams and like it's okay that we're roughing it for now because like we'll get there eventually that was dropped because and because it was like they're all physically punching each other and also like psychologically like the first season nuts like truly not so the amount of like deep lying and deceit and manipulation and you think it can't get any crazier and then you hit season two and that's part of the rewatch culture is because yes you watch it because you're watching people tell bold-faced lies right of, and of, then you know they lied so you want to watch it again yeah well, cause like the craziest thing to me about it and like for, you know, in a lot of ways, I think like reality TV is very easy like with housewives being like, oh, they're just house, like they're, this is just for the show. They're not really good friends in real life. Like at least at the beginning, these people were genuinely friends or frenemies or whatever you want to call them. But like the fact that Stassi, this is very far from like an Adorno critique, but I just want to say it. The fact that Stassi remains friends with Kristen Doty after she actively fucked her ex-boyfriend and lied about and lied about it for years years is absolutely mind-blowing and the only thing I can think is that Stassi's just gonna make her life hell for the rest of the time she knows her and she kind of does but she's also like kind of genuinely a good friend and that's because I think Kristen has a little BPD but you know we don't have to get into that <laughs> but, oh sorry go ahead go ahead well it's also like taught like like everything is excusable um, because of the duration of friendship. Like it, the converse side of that is that um, Jax cheated or like cheated-ish on his girlfriend with his best friend's girlfriend. So he- Exactly. Best friend. And, then they, and, and then he says to his best friend's face, I have no remorse if you like keep your woman satisfied. And then, you know, there's this huge fight. Da, da, da. And then the next season it's like, well, but- We've been friends for 10 years you know like they they will break up with their partners you know like both those couples broke up um like it's inexcusable if your partner does that but it is not in or like it is excusable if it's if your friend. friend well and tom and jacks lest we forget they came up together as models in miami and i was watching season eight the other day and very short snippet they glossed right over it he was like, can, dude, can you believe we shared a twin bed? And I was like, what? <laughs> so once again, the eroticism of friendship rears its head. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. yeah. Maybe they have all, they all have dirt on each other or something. I, it's like, what the fuck? I don't know. But I also think that, you know, I was, um, there's, I think that there's a lot to be said for like the relationship between the soap opera um, mm-hmm. of our parents' generation or whatever and, and the reality TV of our generation um, because no one really watches, well, I mean, maybe some people still watch them. No one I know. They're, I feel like soap operas aren't necessarily what like young people are watching these days or like, or like young people in like metropolitan cities or whatever are watching. Um, and I, you know, and, and I was watching, um, Andy Cohen's like very like pro Bravo, pro America, pro Israel, whatever, pro democracy, uh, uh, show the story of Bravo with it. Sorry, what? The empires will burn and Bravo with it. Oh yeah, exactly. We'll go Bravo, Bravo, um, (laughs) you know, um, but, but, um, but he was, he was, he, he makes the connection even between the soap opera and reality television because they're kind of just like, I mean, the, the, the thing about that, I think the relationship is like reality TV is much less work than a soap opera because you don't need to write it. Yeah. Or you just need to kind of sketch out the scenario, but, but I, I, you know, there's, there's something to be said. So, so people who want to remain a character on it, they need to, they need to act in the way they need to be the simulation or whatever. Of, of what their soap opera uh, doppelganger would have been if it had been a scripted show. And I think that that relationship between the reality and the fiction and like the very, bl- I mean, reality TV does this kind of like incredible thing where it shows that not only is the line between reality and fiction blurred, but it's a false binary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a false dichotomy and not just because reality is fiction fiction is reality it just shows that 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 it's much more expansive than that and that each they 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 feed into each other they're in a relationship with each other and in a way it kind of destroys or queers or whatever fucking word you want to use the the very hard set line between the two and perhaps that is why i'm so drawn to it Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think that this is also like part of the thing of Vanderpump Rules that is so fascinating to see them both like working and then not working, which is also working, you know, like filming their off time is part of their job. It shows that every single job requires um, a kind, a form of self-making, you know, it, it requires um, some sort of, you know, commodifying aspects of yourself, most typically, you know, in adherence to social norms, but sometimes, you know, the, the obscurity can be, or like the, the anti-normative can itself be commodified, which, you know, God bless, uh, neoliberalism for letting Ariana Maddox say heteronormative on TV, um, but that also is part of why it revealed, that's part of why the show is so maybe gay is because it's so apparent that it's it's performance in a lot of ways. Um, you know, that got me thinking of if Sheena is the knockoff Britney Spears, well, Stassi comes off as a knockoff housewife. Like Stassi, is. Yeah, like she's trying really hard to be a housewife. And you can tell, the only one who I think is not performing maybe is Jax because he reveals his pathology yeah he wants like he wants to be 
Like he's very. He's performing as a straight person. He's like, like his performity, you know, and like, maybe that's not your point, but I think that like, even if you're not performing as a person of a different social class or socioeconomic class, I think you're still performing as, as, as just like who your individual is, as, as your like identity or sexual preference. Well, Stasi very. I cut you off. I feel like I totally cut you off. No, no. Stasi totally, um, reveals that she's a huge fan of the housewives she like loves the housewives like she is really a huge fan and like that gets back to what you were saying about this like weird like or like weird like object mother figure show thing where like she's a fan of the housewives but she's also on her own bravo tv show and she's also become the star of her own bravo tv show and like i mean that's yeah, I think that's why I think that was the genius of the marketing of the show is that they they figured that out and they were like this will make people watch because they want to see they want to see the other universe of Bravo, you know. Yeah, well the right right and I think that that was, this is something that I was thinking about because it's like we're, we're introduced to Vanderpump Rules in an episode of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills called Vanderpump Rules. Like that's like the name of the episode. So first of all, you know, there's so much to be said about like the, the, the line between like marketing and reality, whatever. That's not the conversation we're having right now. That's another episode. <laughs> but um, Brandy, uh, Brandy Glanville markets herself as the poorest of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. So they use Brandy as this mediator between the two shows. Like Brandy is like the fade in literally because her conversation with Sheena about like Sheena was like the other woman and her relationship with Eddie. But actually, you know, Sheena actually wasn't the other woman. I mean, Sheena Leanne Rhymes was the other woman. Leanne Rhymes was, but they couldn't get Leanne Rhymes because she doesn't play that social part. So Sheena is, or, or Sheena and Brandy become like faded into like this very similar character. And you see in the premiere of Vanderpump Rules that, 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 that Stassi, <laughs> these names are just like so fucking stupid when you're just like saying them or repeating them. But then, but, but, but Stassi, the reason Stassi hates Sheena is because Stassi automatically takes the side of Brandy. Why does she do this? because of her desire to imitate the lifestyle, the morality, the ethics of the Real Housewives. But also embody the misogyny of the Real Housewives, which is like, to be like, she's a stupid whore. Like, I'm not a stupid whore. Like, I'm fake. Like, I would never fuck a married man. Like, I'm I'm more aligned with the housewives than I am with this trashy ass show because right. I wouldn't fuck a married man. But then jokes on her because Lisa Vanderpump leaves Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and Sheena becomes the favorite of Lisa Vanderpump. Sheena is an, we should think about Sheena because Sheena, Sheena's famous enchiladas. I mean, praise. <laughs> Well, I, when I was re-watching it, I had this totally different experience where, like, I don't know, Sheena's, like, 
I, I can never, I, and, and it's a yes and situation, you know, always where Sheena really wants to be part of the drama, part of the show, you know, especially once her like initial fame of, or, or her initial like position um, plot wise of like being the scorned new girl who's being punished for something she did a very long time ago. Um, and like her desire to just be friends with everyone. But then I was watching the first episode of season two where um, Sheena tries to really hold it down. Like like they're, they're once again, the second season again, tries to do like the we're workers uh, in opposition to the housewives. Not, not as like a political stance, but just like, a, like in a very de- obviously degrading way, like Andy Cohen's attempting to degrade them. Um, but you know, there's, they're a little bit understaffed and there's drama and Sheena's just holding it down, supporting Lisa Vanderpump and Kristen throws a hissy fit. And I was writing it down. Cause I was like, this is wild. You know, I initially had watched it, you know, had knowing the show, knowing Kristen's a nightmare of a person, um, true, like truly unhinged. <laughs> and, um, that, you know, Sheena's just been real, like Sheena's extra, but she's been relentlessly bullied by these people and ostracized by them time and time again. And she's so awkward and cringe. But then I was watching it and I was like, damn, Sheena's like a, a, a class trader in this. You know, she's yes. saying, you know, everyone, I'm going to tattle on you to Lisa. And she does like, she tattled like that. Stassi's like, I don't like you because you tattled on me to Lisa. And Sheena won't hear that. Sheena tattles on Kristen to Lisa and then what does where does Kristen say like she yeah um Sheena says oh my god Lisa you're the best boss of all time um versus saying these people feel like they have servants which is what um I think Katie says Mm -hmm. and then uh someone says to oh uh Lisa says to Kristen a two-week suspension is generous um and meanwhile Kristen was saying things that are so like at first you're like yeah, like that's really fucked up to say to your boss. Like you can't say that to your boss. Obviously you'll get fired. But it was really true of Kristen being like, I'm an adult. You're an adult. Please don't speak to me like this. Which yeah. actually, you know, that that that's how you would treat human to human rather than the like artificial um, uh, act, like, like quite literally performative of I have to say certain things in order to make myself into a certain kind of person under the purview of, of my boss. Like I have to say things to my boss to reproduce myself as like the category of your uh, domestic worker. Yeah, totally. And I think that the rules, like the suspensions, like the rules and Lisa Vanderpump or maybe not Lisa, the show is so punitive because like everyone there has to be punishment because these people act like psychotic people so there has to be punishment for some of their actions but like the the kind of like structure of the intense rules of like how you're supposed to like what the rules of the restaurant are what the rules of like friendship are what the rules of sex are like I feel like that's like really 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 present in this show and I think it's definitely delivered by Lisa as this mommy figure because like in Real Housewives they're all equals so there's not really rules but in this show there's an opportunity to have like genuine rules that they like can abide or break like they're and and they often break them and the amount of suspensions that are that are like the fabric of the drama of the show is crazy like they just get suspended and I can't tell if that's because they're care they're like cast members so they can't actually be fired but like 
I don't know, the suspension feels so juvenile and so humiliating. Like if you fucked up at work and you're an adult, you should just get fired. Like, I don't, I, it seems weird to get like suspended and be like, I'm suspended from school. Cause like my association with suspension is just all from like high school and like kids getting in fights in the cafeteria and being like, oh, he's suspended for a week. Like it's this really kind of, and, and yeah. And like Sheena is the one who's most loved because she's the best waitress. She, and like, she follows the rules the best. And Lisa likes her because she makes her the most money, you know? Yeah. Well, Adorno writes in a culture industry reconsidered that uh, the power of the culture industry's ideology is that conformity has replaced consciousness. The order that springs from it is never confronted with what it claims to be or with the real interests of human beings. And he goes on to kind of relate that to order, saying that order, however, is not good in itself. The fact that the culture industry is oblivious to this and extols order in abstracto bears witness to the impetus, impotence and untruth of the messages it conveys. So, you know, I think that there, you know, I think that the rules, Vanderpump rules, I think that like the, 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 um, the, the, the hermeneutic of, of the rule of the ruling class, you know, and even that when you say it, it sounds silly because it's, um, it's such a repetition. Um, you, you know, those, those rules of being a good waitress, but they're also the rules of, of how to act in a certain type of society, you know? Um, like those are the rules and Lisa Vanderpump does make them. And not only does Lisa Vanderpump make them as their boss, Lisa Vanderpump has come before them and she doesn't let them forget it. She has come before them in the, re in the show of reality television. She's come before them because she has more money and she makes the rules and also she rules over them. Yeah, mm -hmm. bingo. Yeah, no, just tapped into like the whole, whole universe within this show. And this might be a little more George Lucas. But that, sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> he's up, bitches. Uh, <laughs> like the, the, that principle um, has seeped into the totality of it all. You know, it is not simply that um, uh, th there is conformity within the workplace, or there is this uh, th this principle of like hyper individualistic deference to this like authoritarian boss figure but it is that they are actively being you know punished for their moral behavior outside of the show just as much as they are also be like having that immoral quote-unquote immoral behavior be capitalized on you know the the show the engines of the show run on their dysfunction as workers you yeah know, it says you know, if the, I hire my weight staff because they're hot, not because they're good workers. Um, and so they're actually not even being reprimanded based on whether or not they do their job well. They're being reprimanded, not, they're rep, being reprimanded as a worker by Lisa as a boss, but not because, but not for reasons of like bossliness even, or like simplistically put, but reasons of mothering, you know, like, you, you know, like, I do this because I care, you know, I, you know, I know that you can do better. I know you're a better person than this. Like, 
you know, the crazy sit down where like, all of a sudden, all the staff has to like sit around and have a conversation about whether it's like ethically appropriate or not for Dax to have sex with his new girlfriend in the same place of work as his ex-girlfriend is. You know, like this is actually like, like, and this is this is like the workplace dynamic where they they are being actively policed and reprimanded based on them fitting into this very thin moral category of required worker dysfunction to produce the TV show and this like mother rearing thing. Right, and you wonder, like, I'm sorry, if just one short, shortly, you wonder if they were good at their jobs at the restaurant, if that would actually be them being dysfunctional workers for the network of Bravo. Mm-hmm. It would, right. Because no one wants to see a good waitress on TV. <laughs> Like, you know, like, but like, they're invisible. Those good waitresses are invisible. Right. And like, I, I, first of all, I just want to say, I I feel really bad for Sheena. But (laughs) second of all, I want to say that um, this might be like a little bit of like a different, I don't want to like derail the convo, but I, I would say that. So this idea of like them, the show is driven by their dysfunction as like workers of the restaurant. And then you kind of enter 2020 where several get fired for good fucking reason. You know, like Stassi and Kristen did a big racism, a major racism. Let me just say what they did quickly because it's like, it, it really surprised me the gravity of what they did. Yeah, so from what I understand, from what I read, they had a coworker named Faith who was a black woman who Jax cheated on Brittany with. And then there was an ad or something, or they saw something on the internet for a wanted black woman in West Hollywood. And they called the police and said it was Faith. And it was not Faith, it was another black woman. But yeah, but they Um, basically tried to get her killed. Yeah. Yes. And this was right in the wake yeah. of everything that had already, I'm pretty sure already happened with George Floyd. So it was really shocking and maybe not shocking. I mean, shocking, like how horrible that is to do, but I don't know if it's shocking for these reality TV stars. And like, and I, and I would say like, so what's interesting to me and, and Jack's finally got fired. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly. I forget why, but like, yeah. do you know? There was no given reason, which makes it all the more, which in my mind reads, it was something so deeply heinous that if it fully, that the network probably has their lawyers on it and doesn't want it to get out. Like maybe he like raped them. I don't know. But like he like, but he basically, but like basically it's interesting to me. Like, so there's like this one facade of worker employee relationship between the restaurant and um, the cast and then, but then like this year, and like, I think like the cultural moment we're living in, it makes you aware like, no, 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 the network is the boss. Like yeah. your dysfunction as a restaurant worker has now gotten so out of hand that the public now can't tolerate it and you're out, right? Cause like that would have never happened earlier in the seasons. But I also think that like, I obviously, I obviously think that like what they, everybody did was really really bad but to to like to cancel and fire certain members rather than cancel the show to me like doesn't 
I mean, I understand why they didn't cancel the show, but like conceptually, like the show is all like it promotes awful things that shouldn't be like socially accepted. And and like I just think that's a really interesting thing to think about when you're talking because you're bringing up this great point about like the show is driven by their dysfunction as restaurant workers. But, like, how is that going to continue in this day and age? Because you can't act like that anymore. Like you yeah. just can't. What level of actual morality is is permitted and and also like it just shows the kind of like liberal ethos of bravo even firing them because what they did in that instant was absolutely heinous and also not novel you know like there was a really awful moment um in season i want to say season seven or six when there was a, a cast member who was a trans woman who wanted yeah. to interview Stasi and brought up the fact that um, there were certain unnamed claims made that Stasi was racist and Stasi was transphobic, but that did the Stasi did the whole you know like white cis woman crying shtick where she started crying and made it so that those allegations were more harmful than what the allegations said. Like her being called racist was worse than anything that she could have done. Um, yeah for sure I mean I just you know I again I haven't seen the show so I don't I don't know what type I mean they're obviously horrible people but you know but again like you can know someone's a horrible person but then it's also just like um what what are the literal things that they that they've done because I think that a lot of what reality TV does is it kind of like, or, or at least to me, it just like, it, it shows you a very truthful rendition of how disgusting people can be when they're playing along with the rules of, of the ruling class or whatever. Mm. But, um, but you know, but you, but you start to, I think that for me, it's like, you start to think of like when the rules are actually broken and it's just like, I mean, I don't know, like calling the cops on your black coworker in especially in light of the George Floyd protests, it's like it's like a recipe for someone to be killed. You know right. what I mean? You're just like that person cheated on me. It's not just like your revenge fantasy, but it's like literally homicidal. Yeah. And that's I, you know what I mean? And that's the rule that can't be broke, right? Like there's all these rules. Like whenever you try to kill someone at work, like it, like I mean, there is actually like I actually had an instance at the restaurant where I worked where someone came in and threatened to shoot us up. Like she literally was like, I mean, I won't get into all of it now, but she literally was like, I'm gonna fucking shoot you guys up because you you've uh, you you you've taken away my shifts. And she was immediately fired because she was threatening <laughs> to, to kill us. You can't like threaten to kill someone at work. Jesus. Right. I mean, and like. <laughs> and like she 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 wasn't gonna like actually kill us but, but you know what i'm saying I, like and and it's obviously like a bigger conversation than that but i think that yeah. it's also like a question of like when does dysfunction become become more than dysfunction like more than the dysfunction which is the functionality of reality tv mm. you know because that's the relationship because like they're dysfunctional waitresses which means that they're functional reality tv stars Right. Because if they were functional waitresses, they'd be dysfunctional reality TV stars. Right. But there's that, there's the line of morality. And I think, I guess what we learn is that it's homicide, which well, is freaky that it's racial homicide. The thing that was also really disturbing is there was actually another episode where they like tried to call the cops on people as a prank. Um, and also like Faith had absolutely been like, verbally abused by the like like they not in so like the previous episodes did not show them calling 
the cops on her, but they did show a prank using police as punchline. And they like verbally abused Faith. And she was kind of this like, you know, that she was absolutely caricaturized and she was absolutely like the misogynoir misogynoir was rampant. Rampant. Her treatment. And so it kind of felt, you know, absolutely that was like an incredibly heinous thing to do. And also the fact that like this had not, like that that had to be the line, you know, something truly like potentially deadly and like atrocious had to happen rather than those other things being the line um, just kind of showed this kind of terrifying marker by which um, certain acts of brutality are marketable and certain like 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 it's still too far out you know but yeah totally because it's like that because then because like the reason bravo finally fired these problematic reality tv stars who have been problematic and been bad for a long time is because it was the right it was the right legal and pr thing to do because of the moment we were living it had nothing to do with their i mean it you know like i don't think they give a shit what happened like they just like were like oh we can't we can't you know handle this and like yeah from like a legal pr marketing standpoint it was untenable for the show and yeah I just I think that like I keep thinking about that like recently with this like with just like how like language now is much more sensitive and and it is much more quick people are canceled very quickly and reality tv stars are like the perfect people to cancel and I want I do wonder how reality tv will like go on during this and you know like Andy Collins has this new show where he they'll goes into the history of reality TV. It's like, it's like, okay, we're going backwards. Like, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of just going to like live in what we've already created and we're not going to, we're not going to risk more controversy. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I just think it's, it's gotta be present in their minds. Well, I do think that, so I, it absolutely is the sort of thing where there is, I think this particular sensitivity that PR departments are now having to be, uh you know navigating where it's like what is the you know it it, it's almost like least like Vanderpump Rules as a show inaugurated it because there wasn't this disciplinary figure or like this disciplinary avatar on the Real Housewives you know other Real Housewives have gotten like fired or whatever but now there's this layer of like okay there's Lisa who can fire you and then there's the network so like there's the avatar of like restaurant morality. And then there's also like, okay, we cannot have this on TV. But then also it, it does bring in the fact that like being fired from a job is very different from like any sort of accountability or sense of justice or like whatever those words, what the, those overused words um, are often applied to or like falsely applied to, you know, you lose your job and that's like so much and intense. Um, but one thing that I've gotten really fascinated by is, I don't know if you guys have been following the Vanderpump Rules baby boom, where- Johnny I have. Quarantine. Yeah. Okay. There's also a chart that maybe we should talk about. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've maybe seen it. Uh, the Vanderpump Rules baby boom. So for- I, chart. I want to hear about the chart. Oh, I, will, I will put it in the chat right now. Um, four of them got pregnant, three of whom were people who were fired. And I think that it just simply- mm-hmm to the fact that if you are a cis het white woman 
you can redeem yourself from almost anything by getting pregnant. Or I don't mean that in like a, like, you know, like, uh, you know, like, I, I mean that genuinely that like the image of a white cis woman with child is <laughs> a redeemable universally seen as this like or or seen in terms of like the dominant culture in terms of the powers that be as a universally uh purifying image and will absolve you of any sin it's very catholic and so all of these people were canceled and then became pregnant and now are getting deal after deal after deal like they're cancellation was eradicated by virtue of the fact that they were with child and yeah all all of that well, well the that's fascinating really thing about that is that the the white woman you know cured from the um from the kind of societal disdain through pregnancy that is actually that's american gothic you know, that's Faulkner, that whose who's every single book is about how incest within white families is better than um, miscegenation. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, like that is the true American story of the young white woman having sex with the right person or the young white woman uh, be- be- becoming the, the mother, you know, the Mary figure as a way to show her innocence, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I remember, you know, earlier I was talking about how, how reality television as a reflection of America rejects Oedipus. And I think that through that rejection of Oedipus, there's, there's an embrace of American Gothic or it's a new type of, of origin story, which is deeply American. And I think it's exactly the type of like, 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 like innocence treatment that Becca was just, that you just put your finger on. Yeah. I'm looking at this chart. It's, it's really good. (laughs) This is a chart. This is one of those charts for, for the listeners. Uh, This is one of those charts that has, what is it called? Is that, does that have a name? I don't, I, I mean, it's like in my mind, it's somehow related to like the D&D chaotic neutral, but it's, it's like yeah. the, political spe- the political spectrum chart. You guys um, know it, the four quadrants, authoritarian, like the arrow. I don't get it for the record. I don't, I just looked at it. I don't understand any of it. Oh no, well, there, there's so, there's. Again. Okay, whose baby is named Summer Moon Honey Davy? <laughs> Sheena's baby, obviously. Oh my God. Wait, how did Sheena have a baby? How did I miss that? Sheena had a baby. Notably, Sheena was the only one who was not fired. Notably, Sheena has pretty historically been like actively supportive of, you know, the like queer and trans and like non-white cast members. Sheena rules, honestly. Her husband is hunky. Sheena's Sheena's great. And so she is left libertarian and her baby's name is indeed Summer Moon Honey Davies. As opposed to Stassi, who perpetuated the absolutely heinous act ad infinitum um, of many heinous acts that she's perpetuated and she's right libertarian and her baby's name is Hartford Charlie Rose Clark, which is like a mad lib for insert Connecticut random like waspy Connecticut town, insert disgraced 
uh, talk show host. Charlie it's- Rose. What a fucking idiot. Rose. <laughs> maybe. Um, well, do we want to just like maybe wrap up by like just touching on the um, the character of pride <laughs> in <laughs> Vanderpump Rules? Because they are always at pride. <laughs> and oh, God. I mean, it is another one of the things where it's like that act, ironically, Pride is like the one episode that's the least gay of them all. Um, <laughs> because it's all about straight people being like, it's all, firstly, it's like the most like uh, fake shit ever. Like, no fucking homo I know is gonna go to LA and be like, yeah, let me go to Lisa Vanderpump's bar and have Jax Taylor and Kristen Doty serve me a drink. That is the gay haven. So they keep trying to frame themselves. Well, well, they're trying to frame themselves as gay culture without any gay people or without any people who would acknowledge themselves as gay. Um, so it's just kind of like the total perversion of homosociality where it's like, oh, they're deeply homosocial, but also like still there maybe is a line, you know, maybe there's a line I want to draw in this. Yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, just like Lisa, Lisa Vanderpump as a gay icon, I will never not be insane to me. Maybe the culmination of homo nationalism is just only having straight people at Pride. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, that's the goal of it. You know what I mean? That's why that's why people decided that being gay was okay because they wanted to make being gay straight. You know, people want to eradicate the underground because the underground has always been queer because queers have always needed to go underground to find any semblance of pleasure. Yeah. Literal and metaphorical and everything in between and defining of that binary. And I think that reality television or the... Um, the insistent visualization, I, E-Y-E, of showing straight people at Pride is just like a further part of that propaganda. And I think that it has a lot to do with, um, I think also something that Gemma and I have been talking about. We've been talking about or questioning the future of reality television. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like what happens after reality? Um, and I, I think that it's, I think that it's like, you know, it, you you start to have like pseudo documentary sorry pseudo documentaries um about documentary television you have reality tv about reality tv mm-hmm. you know yeah. and i think that we're just beginning to enter into that uh to that to that new stage of yeah. obsession over i guess what was basically the first 20 years of the 21st century that was an era and i think that in about 10 years or so we're going to understand that 2000 to 2020 or whatever was the era of reality television. And we're just starting to track via the television, via streaming sites, via Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever, the shift to something totally different. Because reality yeah. TV, when it started, was totally different. Mm-hmm. And but it, but it shifts. It always shifts. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I feel like actually that touches on such a deep part of of the culture industry, which is, he is talking, I mean, you know, we read it now and we're like, oh, this feels in some way so technologically antiquated because he's talking in large part about the shift from uh, radio and earlier forms of media to new forms of media, such as the movies and, the, and, and Hollywood industry. 
you know? Um, and so it's like, oh, you know, he's being an old man about all of this. But it actually is this immense paradigm shift in terms of the very way in which we consume culture, which is refracted through, you know, necessarily the way that we may or may not consume art um, or the, the way in which art might be considered politically committed. Um, mm -hmm. But absolutely, you know, like Vanderpump Rules is literally started refilming um, this week. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't really want to watch it. And how people have been following the drama or whatever of all the upheaval, all of the plot that has happened between the screening of last season and today, well, Instagram. So it's kind of like the reality TV star is becoming unbounded by, um, you know, the Bravo status, although the Bravo celebrity category is coherent, but there absolutely is a paradigm shift occurring that I don't even know if I have the capacity to, you know, identify because it's so new. And it's also, I think, a kind of temporality of media consumption that I'm only beginning to adjust to. Like, I don't get TikTok. I don't get, you know, following influencers on you know the right. apps but that 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 is where you know that actually is where media is now being consumed yeah well there's there's also something um crazy about the like um you know i think that you know there are many reasons why people abhorred donald trump you know there, there are countless reasons um but at the same time, it's just kind of like, I think that, I think that want, like looking back at it at, as someone who is basically equally as critical of Joe Biden as of Donald Trump, you know, I think, I think that it is a, a, a questioning of how Donald Trump fit into the supposed reality of politicians as like not reality television, but like reality White House or something like that. And I think that like what, when you just said that, Becca, I was thinking about what would, like the constant New York Times headline when for the four years that Trump was a president with, what, what was about his Twitter, mm -hmm. you know? And Twitter is something that is like that, that, that is like the moment you think a thought it's out. And Trump obviously wasn't giving his Twitter to some like media conglomerate in the way that Biden obviously does. So with Trump, it was just like the politician became reduced to a human. And I think that that is actually, that's, you know, that's like the rise of Omarosa because she was on The Apprentice and she was on Fear Factor. That's like Kim Kardashian beginning as this total joke and now becoming a lawyer and people are like, oh my God, she's so radical because of like prison reform or something like that. And, you know, I think that that is actually the future and like reading, um, reading Adorno, yes, sure sometimes you're like that's antiquated but i think that the only time that it's actually antiquated is 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 with the nouns is what he's talking exactly. about it's what the talks about it right it's like totally endless yeah. and it's strangely prescient mm -hmm. yeah oh, absolutely yeah i mean even thinking about you know the gamestop stuff that went on mm -hmm. like the temporality of reddit which you know you know what you were talking about and that has immediate bearing on on uh, a fundamental paradigm shift in politics in economics you know i i'm not necessarily one to like ascribe to like trumpism as an era but 
I think that that in part is because it's not necessarily unique to him, but rather the way that a sort of um, uh, white supremacist nationalist mentality adapted to burgeoning technologies, you know, mm-hmm. or, or um, filtered their way, you know, the way that they uh, bled into kind of Twitter and Reddit and all of these other things. And then of course there are, are uh, other undergrounds that emerge in direct opposition to that or not beyond something beyond opposition, which is often what I hope for beyond opposition, which would be making on its own oriented towards some sort of gay utopia. Um, <laughs> Always. But, yeah. yeah, no, it's absolutely. And I think that the anxieties that Adorno addresses are in part um, real, I don't think he was necessarily thinking about this, but was translatable to, to surveillance, which also has to do with the technological shift and backlash that we're seeing, yeah. Yeah. which is also like the reality TV sphere too of, you know, having to market yourself as surveilled by yourself, um, yeah. self pro- like self-promotion. Um, and the hyper individuation of that, where it's not even like Andy Cohen doesn't represent you anymore, honey. Like you got to sell yourself. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, I think that this was an amazing convo, and I think it's not over. <laughs> yeah, Becca. When are you? When are you free? When are you free? <laughs> June. <laughs> I, literally, when whenever you want me to talk about Vanderpump Rules, I am ready, able. Well, yeah. On the ground. We yeah. could continue. There's lots, there's lots more to say. Um, this was great. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Um, that felt really good. I feel like we got some, got some good stuff going there. Hopefully. Thank you for having me. You two are an absolute dream. Oh, thank you. It's what we do best. Becca Teich is uh, a brilliant poet not only are they <laughs> an Adorno scholar, yeah. poet, and their book Caffeine Chronicles came out a few months ago, published by Brenda Ijima's um, Portable Press at Yo-Yo Lab, or is it Yo-Yo Press at Portable Lab? Anyway, it's wow. fantastic. Becca, can you talk about it for just a sec? Self-promote. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so in a shocking uh, reversal of the temporalities that maybe we do or do not live in, um, I wrote this piece called Caffeine Chronicles that is in part tracking my caffeine usage, both, it's it's all related to work, um, uh, in terms of how I had to kind of foist energy into myself in order to perform the labor that was required of me, but also how I used caffeine as this, kind of performance enhancing drug to an extent uh, in terms of combating the exhaustion derived from work, derived from like capitalistic push down uh, towards queer undergrounds, towards queer cruising and sex. Um, And it also thinks a lot about the way that those things imprint on each other, um, variously so. And then also just a lot, a lot of other tendrils that emerge from there from a uh, kind of note-taking process and arranging aesthetic. Um, so yeah, that came out in February, which was really fun and exciting. And you can get it online at Portable Press at Yo-Yo Lab. Some Amazing. If you look that up, it's somewhere. It's the sexiest reading of Marx that's ever <laughs> the written the written word. 
the physical page. So better get your hands on that. Watch reality television. It's good. It's not only good for your soul. It's good for your brain. In order to understand yourself, you need to watch it. Don't be, as Fran Lebowitz says, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. If it's a pleasure, it's a pleasure. Go get into it. All right. Bye. Bye.